Welcome to the Building Builders Podcast, a podcast made for contractors. Today's guest is Josh Levy, an experienced construction lawyer who has negotiated billions of dollars of contracts for complex construction projects. This experience helped him understand the industry landscape and see the bigger problems that contractors had with understanding and managing risks in construction contracts. In this episode, Kevin and Josh talk about these challenges in more detail. Topics include common construction law terms that contractors should know, the biggest challenges contractors have in setting up their contracts, and how to manage client relationships and contract disputes. Currently, Josh is the CEO and co-founder of Document Crunch, a company that simplifies construction contracts by quickly identifying critical risk provisions and providing guidance throughout the project lifecycle. You can learn more about Document Crunch in the description of this episode. Hey, Josh, it's uh, great to meet you. Thanks for uh, joining the Building Builders podcast. Absolutely, Kevin. I'm real happy to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. We're uh, we've, I've been quite excited to uh, chat with yourself, and uh, I know we're going to have a little bit of a talk, uh, a bit of a, a contract talk today. Uh, but maybe to kick things off, uh, would love to hear just a little bit more about you know yourself, your background, and how you got into construction law. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm a I'd have to just start here. I'm a Miami native, so go Miami Heat. Um, <laughs> I, I I grew up in the South Florida area. I went to the University of Florida, um, kind of chanced into a um, construction management degree, um, decided that I did not um, want to be a project manager. I did some internships with some really big general contractors and decided I just didn't want to, you know, go to, go to work on a job site every day. I just didn't have that that passion. I used to have a professor that said, you got to love the smell of sawdust and concrete to like work in this industry. <laughs> and I just didn't. Um, but I did really enjoy the business of the industry. So anyway, I actually had a short stint where I was the employee of a year, the year for a small startup uh, for a, a, you know, a couple years, um, but then decided kind of lost my faith in the product, which happy to say uh, five years into Document Crunch, my conviction is actually stronger than ever. Uh, whereas this nice. other product, my conviction was you know kind of waned over time. So I uh, decided to go to law school, went to law school at the University of Miami, my hometown. Um, and actually, 15 years ago this summer, so here we are in, you know, end of May 2023. 15 years ago this summer, I, I ended up getting a clerkship or an internship while in law school with the preeminent construction law firm in the United States. And I was working in their Miami office this summer, 15 years ago. Also the same summer I got engaged to my wife and now mother of my two kids. But so it was, a, it was quite a consequential summer. Um, I interned there for a small or for a young partner uh, by the name of Adam Hanfinger. And um, aside from having a funny last name, uh, Adam's name is a memorable one because Adam um, is now the managing partner of that preeminent law firm in the U.S. And he sits on their executive committee nationwide and uh, he's actually my co-founder of, of Document Crunch. So, uh, mm. you know, kind of just nice bookends there. So we'll get back to Adam in a second. But um, I practiced law uh, in that law firm and another actually law firm for several years in the Miami area where I ended up, you know, having an exclusive construction practice um, representing a bunch of really general contractors, but also sometimes developers and also sometimes, you know, uh, trade contractors as well. And eight years ago, uh, a really large general contractor brought me in-house. So I moved to the city of Atlanta, where I am today, um, mm-hmm. to come in-house with an ENR top 20 contractor. And, um, you know, I started off in the in the, their Southeast business unit. Uh, was about five, $600 million in revenue when I started there. When I left there, 
right as the pandemic was starting, we had uh, eclipsed a billion dollars in revenue and I was leading the legal department in that business unit. And so imagine that I was there during a period of tremendous growth, uh, kind of coming out of the recession and then into kind of, you know, whatever, but the, 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 was there during a period of tremendous growth. And in that role in particular, uh, I became really just kind of overwhelmed as we were having this growth with a couple of different things that were happening, which led to the founding of, of, of Document Crunch. One, um, I was being inundated with contract reviews every single day. Hey, we're bidding a job. We're one of three, one of four bidders. You know, we need someone to put eyes on this. Like, can you help us make sure we're pricing the risk or qualifying our bid appropriately? So that was happening. Mm-hmm. I actually ended up hiring Adam and my old firm to help me with a lot of that work because I was just like, you know, overwhelmed with all the contract reviews I had to do. But then you can see there's a transparent, you know, window here behind me in the office I'm sitting in. Yeah. While I was heads down doing the stuff that you would expect lawyers at big construction companies to do, whether it was, you know, negotiating projects over $100 million in value or dealing with a major claim or dealing with HR issues or, you know, working through just big, you know, high risk items. I would have a line of project managers outside my office, outside just like this, pacing outside every single day. Hard hat in one hand, piece of paper on the other hand, in the other hand, knocking on my door kind of a little bit quietly, sticking and popping their head and saying, hey, man, um, something happened on the job site. What do we do? What does our contract say? How do we manage this? And those two pain points in particular, the one that I was experiencing kind of like while I was thinking out loud, most construction companies out there couldn't afford to have someone like me sitting in house being essentially the Oracle of contracts, you know, reviewing every piece of paper before we bid it or signed it. Mm-hmm. And certainly couldn't, didn't have the resources to be paying someone like my co-founder, 600, $700 an hour to do that work. Right. Most companies didn't have that in the pre-signature phase. Um, but even for the ones that did big and small, no one had an answer for all these people pacing outside every single day. And this idea that, you know, our, our industry struggles with understanding what's in their contracts, both in the back office, but also in the field, and knowing how critically important contract compliance is to ensuring profitable projects, to ensuring that claims don't spin out of control, things like that. Those were kind of the two big problems that really like, you know, influenced me and inspired me to step out and, and found this company. <laughs> Wow. That's a, uh, an amazing story. I, um, you know what, maybe we can just pause. I have some more questions, but I'd love to tell me more about your company. Yeah. So in response, in response to those two problems, right. What document crunch is doing today is we're empowering everyone. And when I say everyone, I literally mean everyone in the industry to understand what's in their contracts. And we're doing that in several different ways, and it's quickly evolving where we will go. But the two areas that we're primarily focused on right now are the pre-signature phase. Hey, before you sign this, you should know about these issues. And, you know, with a unique user interface, which helps contractors go through, like, the workflow of bidding a job and negotiating a job Mm -hmm. and all that. But then also empowering people in the field to make good decisions every single day around, you know, not all the, you know, academic legal issues, but around things like change management and financial management and project execution. Very cool. Um, Yeah, that sounds awesome. Would love to learn more about that uh, at at another time. Um, Are there, you know, through this, you know, uh, have you come up with any sort of terms that uh, contractors should be watching out for either, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's probably some that, you know, they're looking at and say, well, this is just, you know, 
extra legal stuff that I can probably breeze over in the contract, but is it, there's stuff that people miss all the time. Absolutely. I mean, there's all the like the execution and business terms, which are actually, in my opinion, like the most important. I mean, it just mm-hmm. depends, you know, Kevin, on what area you want to think about. But then, I mean, we now have official partnerships with like with Electri, for example. So that's the uh, National Electrical Contractors Association's like not-for-profit research foundation. Mm-hmm. We have we've given access through this partnership to thirty of their chapters nationwide who are all using document crunch every day. And what we're doing is we're understanding where the data trends are in that cohort so that Electric can tell its members how it's performing across like the 11 riskiest terms that it considers to be important for its members based on a set of standards. Okay. We're doing something very similar with XXL, a major insurance company um, that, you know, does SDI, sub default insurance for uh, big general contractors are doing a very similar exercise. So, you know, that's kind of the interesting thing about this, Kevin, is yes, I mean, there's not a lot of variance having been outside lawyer for dozens upon dozens of contractors and then, you know, spent so much time in-house. There's not much variance between companies of the major issues. So, you know, when I think about right. like, think, when I think about things that I think I would explain at like a high level to like, you know, folks, you know, like the concept around consequential damages, right? If you're building a hotel, you're the window installer uh, and the windows leak. Should you be responsible to, you know, reinstall those windows and maybe clean up any of the damage in the room that ensued, you know, because the window leak, yep. their direct damages, or are you willing to take on exposure if that room is out of commission now for three months and the hotel was during the Super Bowl and the hotel would have, you know, made $500,000 in profit on that room and now they're coming to you right. with your handout. Like, these are the types of things that are very real. And what I would say is, yes, you could breeze over all of them, but it only takes one. It only takes one time for for you to never want to breathe over it again. I'll just give you an example for when I was in private practice. I had a contractor client who was doing work on a Native American uh, reservation on a casino. And one of Mm -hmm. the uh, trade contractors, I believe the site work contractor, cut an electrical line, which turned off like a, a bank of slot machines for like four or six hours on a Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And we got a spreadsheet from the tribe saying, here's how much we would have made on those slot machines. There's just, wow. no, there's no way I can tell you, cause I negotiated the contract for that work. There's no way that I was contemplated contemplating what the lost revenues would be if we hit the slot machines or I've done a lot of work on airports. So if, you know, you're on an active airport site and the airline can't operate the gate, like what does that mean? These are the types of risks that I don't believe contractors are adequately pricing when they're doing jobs, nor should they be because they're on the best. These other you know, entities understand their business and can price around that risk. But my point is by just taking on consequential damages exposure and not being you know, aware that a, a simple mutual waiver of consequential damages, it gets you out of ever having to get that letter. <laughs> right. All of a sudden you're like, what? I owe what? And that, yeah, I mean, so, you know, waivers of consequential damages, uh, you know, indemnification obligations, you know, are you responsible for anything and everything that happens while, like, while you're there? Or are you only responsible for the things that you should, you know, that you did something wrong to the extent that you did something wrong? You know, subrogation rights. I recently had a, we're working with a roofing contractor and they recently, you know, they're, they're about to go on site and, you know, they have a small scope of work. But what happens if they burn down the entire building? Like, should the should the homeowners association be able to sue their insurance carriers, sue them for the whole value of the building, even though they already have insurance for it? So there's certainly terms like tied up in the subrogation framework. Um, 
you know, and, and I think that, you know, the neat thing about what we're doing at Document Crunch is hopefully we're taking those terms and making them very easy to understand and digest by the industry so that the industry can make actionable decisions around those big ticket items. So as a contractor, when you see um, cons- consequential damages, how do you deal with it? Do you just run away and say, there's no way I can't, I can't do it? Do you... Is there room to negotiate uh, terms? Is there, or or do you have to add extra margin in your uh, your jobs to be able to? Cover? The, the, the data and some of these data studies that we're doing uh, suggest that of mm-hmm. course there's room to negotiate. Um, I would say that whether you know whether I would run away from it or not really depends a lot on like the asset that we would be working on. If I'm doing work on a on a mm-hmm. stadium and and that stadium needs to be ready before football season and. The owner is yeah. asking me to uh, take on consequential risk. If it's yeah. you know, that's a that's a you know how could you do that? You know that's just my opinion. Yeah. Of course, everyone has different risk tolerance. The other hand, if I'm building a, a, a small school uh, for a public entity, you know what you know it's harder for me to wrap my head around like the magnitude of what kind of consequential losses they would really have or be able to prove. Whereas, you know, right. a stadium could easily say, well, this is really matter you know, 74,000 tickets, average ticket price, a hundred bucks, you know, $7.4 million a, a game is, you know, yeah. um, I don't know if I got that math right, but it sounds, it sounds about right. <laughs> it's it's either 7.4 7. Yeah. million or mm-hmm. 74 million. I gotta, I gotta <laughs> check that. Um, but anyway, that, <clears throat> that's kind of how we think about it. Yeah. So, um, great advice, at least, um, you know, something for everyone to start thinking about that's for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, Kevin, I mean, that's the whole point. There's not a right or wrong answer to any of this stuff. It is highly right. subjective. It's highly dependent on the circumstances. And, you know, that's why, like what, even when I was a lawyer, I felt this way, but at document crunch, we don't want to make decisions for you, but we want to arm you with the, Hey, you should be looking at this and here's some things to think about. And by doing that, you allow people to make good business decisions. Like, like the list of issues yeah. that you just went through. Do you run away? I don't know. Do you? Do you price it? Do you try and negotiate it? All these things are fair options to consider. Right. But you have to you have to drive that awareness in order to be able to consider those options. And that's what we're really aiming to do. We're not here to say something's right. good or bad. We're not here to give you advice. We're here to simply say, be aware. Be aware yeah. and make a good decision. And that's powerful in an industry that, at least in my experience, Kevin. I've been out here for a while. I've worked, you know, across the table from any smaller contractors or, you know, other stakeholders in the industry that just don't even have that fundamental awareness. And now you're in a situation where you're kind of going in blind and that's where surprises happen. And of course, that's not good for business. This podcast is brought to you by Dozer, an online marketplace for heavy equipment rentals across North America. Partnering with thousands of rental houses, Dozer provides contractors with access to local suppliers, transparent pricing, and mobile ordering. Go to dozer.com to find your next heavy equipment rental. That's D-O-Z-R.com. Yeah, you're essentially, um, you're providing awareness uh, so that, you know, these contractors can do their own risk management, right? There's a little bit of education here for those that don't have the resources to be able to do it themselves. I imagine that there are, I mean, we have you know, a bunch of customers using Document Crunch every single day. And I would imagine that there are probably numerous times where maybe some of the smaller contractors say, oh, 
let me pick up the phone and call a lawyer or my insurance broker or someone to help me with this. Like it's not, you could do everything by yourself. Maybe there's instances where they say, I got it. I've been doing this. I'm comfortable with this. Now I understand, you know, either way that awareness is absolutely critical. So you at least can consider options holistically and not make, not make decisions based on limited access to information. What, uh, what are the biggest challenges that contractors face when setting up their own contracts? Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a lot right now in this generative AI world about dra- drafting contracts. And so many people are saying like, well, can we do this in the construction industry? Go find me the contractor that gets to draft their own contracts and I'll tell you that you found the unicorn. Everything, <laughs> ro- everything rolls downhill in our industry. Owners, like at least in my experience, and like 99% of the time would source their own contracts. I think the one area that I've seen where, you know, it's systematically not this way is like for, you know, custom home building. A lot of times the homeowners, yep. the home builders will build, you know, will do the contractor. When I just renoed my bathroom at home, we didn't have a, we, we didn't get to source the contract. But in commercial construction, owners source the contracts, I would say 99% of the time. Then that contract gets flowed down to the sub, you know, or trade contractors from the general and so on and so on and so on. So um, I would say the biggest challenge that contractors have in drafting their contracts is that they don't really get the opportunity to draft their own contracts. But I think, I think, I think otherwise, like if I think if I spin your question, I don't know if you've met this, like, you know, plenty of generals draft their own subcontracts. And I, and I think the biggest challenge is ensuring that that subcontract, the boilerplate is flexible enough where you can take whatever risks you've bought in the prime contract and make sure that you're balancing them vis-a-vis your sub framework as well, because there's nothing worse than the general contractor's perspective than when the owner has a claim against the general, but the general doesn't have the same claim against the responsible trade partner. That can become right. a, real, a real issue. And I think, like, you know, similarly, the trade partners oftentimes are like, well, I look at the subcontract, but are you looking at the prime contract? Because there's a really good chance that you're buying whatever's in the prime contract. So, again, an awareness issue, but I think that's the biggest challenge, I would say, ensuring that consistency. But otherwise, I would say, yeah, go find me the contractor that says they get to draft their own. You know, we should have any we should do a poll coming out of this podcast for any of your listeners that are are generals or trade contractors. What percentage of them get to source their own contracts to the party, you know, up on the chain? The answer is going to be a small number. Well, um, you know, maybe I can give uh, a group uh, give an example. So, by the way, I love your example of the subcontractor there. We do have a lot of listeners that are um, like smaller contractors working on residential projects. You know, I, I'll even use myself as an example. Back in the day, I used to have a one of the larger landscaping companies up uh, in Ontario, uh, but we did a lot of residential uh, jobs, right? We'd go in, we'd install a pool, we'd install a front backyard landscape. So the contract was kind of on us. One of the things that we used to do is we'd lean on industry associations and take some of their like standard terms. Um, so I think that's kind of where I was building that question from, but uh, yeah, yeah, I wonder if you so, work with groups like that. So I would say that if you had the opportunity to do so, the industry associations and some of the standard templates are a, while they may not be perfect or optimal, they're certainly a reasonable starting point, you know, and, and frankly, you know, I believe, again, my opinion, not not the rule. I believe in many circumstances, those forms are pretty sufficient. I'm sure there's a lot of very high right. lawyers that if they were listening to this would say, absolutely not. You got to, you know, tweak it. And, and yes, I get it. To go from good to great, maybe you would need to tweak it. 
But the reality is, is, and you know this, we're all in business now. Sometimes settling for good to get a deal done or to move the deal along is just fine. And um, yeah. I, I think that those industry forms and templates are, are pretty, you know, by and large, I, I, I'm a proponent of them. Um, <clears throat> do you think a lot of, so thinking about the settlements, um, is a lot of this, you know, does it end up in splitting the difference? Or like do... Uh, um, or do people fight right to the very last penny? Uh, You're talking about on the negotiation and... of the contract? Yeah. I uh, no, pass. So when something goes wrong. Oh, um, I think it really depends. Um, I think, again, mm-hmm. let's go back to this concept of awareness. I think when you have mm-hmm. awareness early on of where your strengths and weaknesses are, you know, you can make your, your, your desire to fight about things should be directly correlated to that. And so, in my in my opinion, Kevin is there's very there's very rarely a dispute which goes to like some of the problem that we're trying to solve for document crunch. Never in my right. career, never in my career having been involved in billions upon billions upon billions of dollars in construction projects. Never in my yep. career have I had a major claim come to my desk and be call that project team in and say, "Oh, let's see what you got. Put your cards on the table." Never yep. have I said, "Oh, wow." we're going to crush this. I want to take this to the Supreme court of the United States. <laughs> Never. Right. Because if there's a dispute, that probably means that somewhere along the way there became pluses and minuses to that issue or else they wouldn't be in my office because it would have been settled in the project trailer. Like, like it would have been <laughs> right. obvious and it would have just been resolved and done. So I guess my point is, I think that, you know, people that are well positioned in claims have awareness early on, Yep. And, you know, they're, 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 you know, uh, I should say threshold to compromise is probably directly correlated to the strength of their claim. Um, I think what you find oftentimes, Kevin, is people go into these like in the contract negotiation without the benefit of a, a team that did all the right things during the mm-hmm. course of construction, which we're trying to help at document crunch B, yep. B that not necessarily being communicated fully. And then see yep. the other side putting their cards on the table at some point in time. And everyone's saying, oh, shoot, we just wasted a lot of time and a lot of money fighting something that maybe we should have compromised, you know, early on. Yeah. You also have, I mean, I hate to say this, but you also have the more stakeholders that come in that, you know, have, you know, adverse maybe interests. Like there's whole cottage industries that are built around claims and you know, so all that stuff right. just adds layers of uncertainty and expense onto things. And again, like it's my fundamental position that if you can arm people with good information at the project level, the onset, like, like if I was sitting in a job trailer and the owner said, mm-hmm. you can't use contingency for that. Yeah. Which happens. Sure. Maybe just maybe there's a situation where I would say, well, hold on. Here is the contract. Of course we can use it. It says it plain as day. What are we talking about? Here's the change order. Sign it and let me go buy you a beer. Like, let's just move. Like, <laughs> right. this, is, this is, this is, like, what are we talking about? Yeah. But that doesn't happen because teams <laughs> aren't confident to challenge in a good way, to push back in a good way, to, to have a discussion, a collaborative discussion where there's transparency and equal access to information. And that's the difference. So I, I love, I love, the answer there that leads me right into my next question of how, uh, how do change orders uh, and scheduling factor into contract disputes? Yeah. I mean, it's the 
So I always say, I don't know if this is a PG uh, podcast or rated R podcast. So I'm gonna, I'll use it. I'll use it. Take it how you want. I'll use a euphemism. There's a bumper sticker, a very famous one that says "stuff happens." Maybe there's another word for stuff. Sure. <laughs> the construction industry is, to, in my opinion, Exhibit A or the shining example of that. Stuff happens on construction projects every day that impact the cost and the schedule. And who's responsible for that stuff happening is completely tied up in what the contract says. I mean, we are called contractors right. for crying out loud. And the entirety of that stuff happening, who's the responsibility or who pays for it is born in the contract. So when stuff mm -hmm. happens, it's predominantly going to impact one of two things at the project level. And you just mentioned both of them, price or schedule. And so yep. the ability to be on top of that stuff, manage that stuff, know who's responsible when, know how to comply, know how to perfect your rights, know how to pull all the right levers so that you leave no doubt, yeah. it's all tied to the contract. <clears throat> so this kind of gets me thinking a little bit. So it's obviously all tied to the contract, but how do, how do you manage, do you have any advice for managing relationships? Right. Like sometimes, you know, like when you say contract, you, if, if you're in that job trailer and you pull your, say, a younger company, you know, first 10 jobs as a subcontractor, it's a little intimidating to pull out the contract. Right. Like, how do you manage the relationship? It, it is. And it just goes back, Kevin, to exactly what we just said. And honestly, we're such a relational industry. I think this is why sometimes teams are so hesitant. But here's my experience. That experience that I just gave you about, well, it's clearly in the contract. Like, what are we talking about? Let me go buy you a beer. You know, the, I think that this is a good business rule and it's a certainly a good rule in construction. In my experience, when I'm across the table talking to somebody, negotiating with somebody, whether it's over a change order or over who's going to do the next, you know, major financing for document crunch or, or, or a major customer contract or something like that. When the other party, the counterparty, the person across the table, when they are prepared, when they are taking positions that are grounded in substance, not arbitrary positions, when they're articulating their rationale for why they disagree with something that I've said, human nature is to actually respect, to form respect, to understand, to, to, to appreciate that someone is prepared, right? It doesn't mean that you have to fight mm -hmm. or be a blowhard. It means that you should res yep. you should respectfully go about operating your business by honoring the deal or, 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 or talking about why that deal may not work for you, you know, before you get into the deal. And I think just like anything, I mean, it's probably good, like relationship advice for spouses. It's like when you can put things on the table, like transparently grounded in logic, you know, with good reason, it actually mm -hmm. engenders respect from the other parties. So what I would say, and this is what I used to train project managers, just because you're asking for time or money, that doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you somebody, right. you know, and you want to engender that respect from whoever you're working with. So that's my just general. So the advice I would have is don't be unprepared, prepare yourself and yeah. otherwise act in a professional way. Because the minute that you start cutting corners because you want to, the relationship, you know, just matters yeah. to the exclusion of, of, of the deal. Like that's when you start, you know, creating a dynamic that is more arbitrary in nature, that's more susceptible to, to you know, things going yeah. sideways. And frankly, guess what? When you get to the end of the job, as hopeful and as optimistic as you were at one point in the job, 
these things tend to always manifest themselves as a bigger deal than they were at the time. Well, we, yeah, you said we didn't, couldn't use contingency for this, or you said this wasn't a change order and to just use our contingency and we're now out of contingency. Well, people tend to forget that that happened six months ago or a year ago, right? Because money is on the line and people tend to tighten yeah. up and pucker up a little bit. And so anyway, my advice would be, be aware, be professional, be transparent, bring logic to the table. You'll ultimately engender a more respectful dynamic, which will suit you better in the long run, rather than sweeping things on the uh, So on that, is any advice like when it comes to, you know, say on both sides, uh, you know, timing with, you know, the, getting the change orders or having that kind of uh, discussion and then even like timing of payment from the owner to the contractor and any advice here on what to do to sort of avoid some of these legal uh, challenges? Yeah. So it's negotiation 101. Each change order is an opportunity to change the contract. You're much better off dealing with those one at a time rather than dealing with 40 at a time, right? Because right. once you have 40 at a time, there's a much bigger, you know, corpus from which you have to you know deal with and now you're starting to think about compromising where or if you just dinked and dunked your way to the 40 rightful change orders you have a high you probably be batting a higher percentage of getting those resolved so that's the first thing again don't sleep things under the rug be proactive deal with things in real time deal with things when they're fresh in everybody's minds and then you know in terms of the timing of payment on those change orders look i mean cash flow is king for our industry especially for smaller contractors out there you know, I think you should be very mindful of what your contract says with regard to the timing of payments and things of that nature. And, you know, the commercial reality is people always pay a little bit longer than we all hope that right. it's the same in the, it's the same in the software world, right? We all have that issue. But again, if you have a good agreement in place that you can stand on, like you have the ability to pick up the phone and say, Hey, what's going on? Like, this isn't right. Our agreement doesn't say this. We want to be a great partner. Right. But like we need your help and that's okay. It's right. okay. To, that's okay to do that. Where I think people get over their skis is, you know, you leave these loose payment terms in your contract, then you don't really have a basis to pick up the phone anymore. You're just saying, come on, be a good person. Um, right. That, that, that just doesn't, doesn't carry the same weight. <clears throat> so I think I hear, hear you saying, you know, although it can be hard to have these conversations uh, for changeovers, the... Uh, the client will respect you uh, and you shouldn't procrastinate because they're a whole lot easier to do faster and one at a time rather than procrastinating, wait until the end of the project, you have 10 of them and figure that you'll do this one hard discussion once. Better to have 10 little ones. You're always going to end up giving more money away if you do it, uh, if, you, if you wait till the end. Um, are there any... Um, um, are there any uh, are there ever any things that are usually in a construction contract that uh, could be left out, um, you know, or uh, is good to be uh, overprotected on? I'm not sure. Are you saying are there are there items that are commonly left out? Of, of yeah, are there, like are there things that are left out of a, a contract that should be put in? Uh, you know, people forget to put them into the contract. Well, I mean, we don't need to look past. Um, material escalation provisions, right? So like, that's a new one, you know, five years ago, I wouldn't have worried about supply chain risk or delays due to, right. to or delays due to COVID and things like that. And that's now become like a, 
a thing. So imagine that, like, you know, everyone's been talking about that for the last two years now, three years now. Interestingly, Kevin, we did a study with a lecture where in 2023, so everyone's aware of supply chain risks. We did a study of contracts uploaded like in Q1 of 2023 to Document Crunch. I can't remember the exact yeah. number, but I want to say that 70% of them did not contain material price escalation clauses protecting people. And so you think about like this idea that like we know that this is likely to be an issue. We're eyes wide open, yet 70% of the time, you know, in a limited data set, it's just on document crunch. Still, we got a good amount of contracts coming through document crunch, but, you know, and it was a short window of time, but like something like 70% or maybe it was 60%, whatever it was, 60 to 70% were not protecting themselves. So that's like a really great example of like a recent issue that hasn't always been in contracts. And so if you were just relying on these industry boilerplates or templates like that's a great example of like where something could just be omitted because institutionally that hasn't always been the case so it may not find itself into every contract template ever you know created by 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 some of these template providers but yeah that's like a great example of like an issue that i don't think is being addressed enough you know sorry go ahead that's wild to me i can't i can't believe that stat that you just shared i mean frankly uh there's probably um, there was probably some leeway, you know, frustration from the client side, but fr- some leeway for, you know, change in material costs when COVID started. But, you know, now having 60, 70% of contracts not include this, uh, it's a uh, surprise. So, so we did this webinar about a month or so ago with this, with the f- findings of the study. And like the other big thing that was, um, that had stuck out is there was another study that we didn't do, but we cited it in this webinar where I think constru- I think material price escalation cost the industry ninety six billion dollars last year, billion. Wow. Yet contractors aren't protecting themselves from this. Like, it's crazy, and that underscores what we're talking about here, Kevin. Like, if I was in some, if I could be in every yeah. contractor's office that was about to sign that deal and was ready to mobilize and go on site. I would at least be saying, hey, are we cool with the material prices? Like, how long does our price last for? Like, do we have, do we own all the materials already? Are they sitting in our warehouse outside? Or that would at least be a discussion that I would want to have. Again, I'm not saying that in every instance it's necessary that 100% of contracts do this. It's highly dependent upon the circumstances, but I would at least be wanting to raise that awareness. But our industry struggles with awareness when it comes to these issues. And there's just got to be a better way for our industry. Like to your point, as shocking as that is, the, the cold hard reality and, and, you know, Josh Bone, who's the executive director of, of Electri, said this. I mean, in this webinar, he's traveling around the country right now and electrical trade contractors are going out of business left and right over this one issue. Like that's, how, what, it, right. that's what it translates to. Like that's, that's where you take this from a statistic to a reality. And so – let me raise awareness here. Like, put let's put some faces on it. Good contractors that have been in business for a long time, owned by good families, owned by good people, people creating jobs, are shuttering their doors over this issue. And that's sad in of itself. Mm-hmm. But do you know what else is sad, Kevin? That doesn't actually serve our industry well in the long run. Because the supply chain probably will get under control at some point in time. I don't know if it's in a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. But if we want efficient construction pricing, 
if we want a competitive environment, we don't want good contractors going out of business. Sure. We want to be able to have the capacity at hand to have great companies that are experienced doing great work. And so it's a real problem, but there's a lack of awareness, but there's, there's clearly a lack of awareness still around this issue. And that is where I think our industry has a huge opportunity to be better. And I hope to have a small part in that. I, I have one, uh, one more question somewhat related to this. Um, so I, I'm just going to give you an example. I used to, as I mentioned, have you know f- a pretty big uh, landscape construction and maintenance company. Um, part of that, you know, we bid on a lot of government projects, and you know, we'd be committing at least five years. You know, there were a couple of big ones where it was like ten years to maintenance. Um, we're talking about these material escalation clauses. Is there anything to protect a contractor from um, the escalation in labor costs? I, I just remember thinking about all of, you know, my peers when COVID started, you know, and being so happy that I didn't have those contracts. Like there's nobody available to work. Nobody wanted to. And even now, how do you get people to cut grass? Like it, it, In this, it's so glad you talked about this. In this webinar, one of the participants actually asked that exact question. Is labor the next material price? Yeah. And so, like, like, in other words, is this the next thing that we should be contracting around? And I think it's a very like valid question, but it's this, this is the example. These were not things that I used to care. Like, you know, I've only been out of, out of the, out of the legal realm for, you know, I guess like a little over two years now, since I've been full-time at document crunch, these were not things. I mean, two years ago, I was still worrying about them or I was worrying about it, but four years ago or six years ago, there's, I just, the industry was not there. So these are not things that we like were contracting around or thinking about it. But that's why this awareness thing is so important. Like you've got to be paying attention to what's going on out there. And um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, it's, you know, you're now the second person that that's asked that question publicly. And I think there's, there's obviously something to it. And so, you know, maybe that should be the next thing that we should be raising awareness on. Like who, who's going to draft the labor escalation clause and start circulating that for our industry? Like, yeah. Maybe we should. And, you know, that, th- but these are the types of like dynamic or fluid examples where like, you know, just relying on an old industry template may not work. Right. And so I think it's just a great example. Like the industry is going to continue to evolve and we need to continue to evolve if we're going to be, you know, stakeholders within, within that industry. Awesome. That's super interesting to think about. Um, uh, Josh, this has been great. I, I want to ask you one more question. We always uh, ask everyone do, uh, a little unrelated, but do you have a favorite piece of construction equipment? Yeah, I do. Actually, uh, that's an easy one for me. Um, <laughs> I would say uh, my hard hat and my boots. Um, and I would say one, because I've just seen too many times where that hard hat has come in handy and maybe, maybe I've knocked into a couple things while being on site. And two, the boots, I'll tell you a funny story. I went to a topping out party when I was in my legal realm um, on a very, very uh, rainy day. It was a last minute topping out party. And I was in a pair of, I'd come from the legal thing and I was in a pair of very expensive, nice shoes. And after uh, going to the topping out party on a muddy site on a rainy day, um, I will never go on site without boots again. (laughs) 
I probably could have had a lifetime supply of boots for the value of the shoes that got ruined that day. So, uh, yeah, those are my two things. They're in your car at all times. I I imagine. Yeah. Uh, Awesome. Thank you. This has been really great. Where, where can our listeners, uh, uh, get in touch and, you know, find out more, uh, from yourself and document crunch. Yeah. I mean, our website's, uh, www.documentcrunch.com. Um, the, uh, you know, otherwise you could find me on, on LinkedIn or on social media, you know, Josh Levy, Document Crunch. Um, I'm happy to, you know, happy to, 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 you know, interact and answer any questions you all have. We're, we're, we're really just here to try and help our industry. I know, I know that our industry can be better. Mm-hmm. I know, I know it. I believe in it. And I'm here to help. Document Crunch is here to help. We want to bring our industry to a brighter, more profitable future. So please engage as much as you would like. Awesome. Thanks again, Josh. It's been really great. Thanks, Kevin. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Josh about his career journey and his experience in construction law. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on social media and watch all of our episodes on YouTube. And make sure to subscribe there as well. All links to Josh, including his LinkedIn and Document Crunch, are provided in the description of this episode. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back for our next show.